Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Night fell swiftly as it does in the jungle. A few stray shafts of light seemed to linger as though trapped between the jungle floor and its roof. And then it was black, silent, except for the staring of those creepy, crawling things that move by the night. The crocodiles were out. Their noiseless downstream swimming marked by the gradually widening V of their wakes. Down by the sandbar there was movement opposite of the outpost. A marine fired at the sound. No, no, me Vulza, me Sergeant Major Vulza. A short, powerful figure staggered out of the darkness. Blood streamed from his naked chest, from his throat. He was a fuzzy-headed Melanesian. He was Sergeant Major Vuza of the Solomon Island Police, and he had been captured by the Japanese and tortured. He was taken to Pollock's command post, and there, with blood still dripping from his wounds, he began to speak. I was cotted by the Japs, and one of the Jap naval officers questioned me, but I refused to answer. And I was bayoneted by long sword twice on my chest, through my throat, and cutted by side of my tongue. And I was got up from enemy and walked to American front line. How many Japs? Pollock sharply asked. Maybe 250, maybe 500. Pollock heard enough. He called division to come for Vuza. He glanced at his watch to mark the time at 18 minutes past one in the morning. And at that moment, a green flare rose from the coconut groves. A Marine sentry fired shots, and the Japanese bonsai charge began. Sir Jacob Charles Vuza was born in Tazambuku, Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands, and educated at the South Seas Evangelical Mission School there. In 1916, he joined the Solomon Islands Protectorate Armed Constabulary. He retired in 1945 after 25 years of service and as the rank of Sergeant Major. In mid-1942, Japanese forces invaded Guadalcanal. Vuza returned to active duty with the British forces and volunteered to work with the Coast Watchers. A Scotsman, Major Martin Clemens, was the officer in charge of Sergeant Major Vuza's brigade of native scouts. Vuza's ability to scout had already been established when the U.S. 1st Marine Division landed on Guadalcanal on August 7, 1942. That same day, Vuza rescued an aviator from the USS Wasp who was shot down in Japanese-held territory. He guided the pilot to the American lines where he met the Marines for the first time. Vuza then volunteered to scout behind enemy lines. On August 20th, while scouting for suspected Japanese outpost, Vuza was captured by the men of the Ichiki Detachment, a battalion strength forces of the Japanese 28th Infantry Regiment. Having found a small American flag in Vuza's loincloth, the Japanese tied him to a tree and tortured him for information about the Allied forces. Vuza was questioned for hours but refused to talk. He was then bayoneted in both arms, his throat, shoulder, face, and stomach, and left to die. After his captures departed, he freed himself by chewing through the ropes with his teeth and made his way through miles of jungles to the American lines. Before accepting medical attention from a corpsman, he gasped a warning to Martin Clemens and Lieutenant Colonel Edwin A. Pollock, whose 2nd Battalion 1st Marines held the defensive line at the Elu River mouth. Vuza told him that an estimated 250 to 500 Japanese soldiers were coming to attack their position at any moment. This warning gave the Marines a brief but precious time to prepare their defenses along the Elu River. The subsequent battle of the Tenaru was a clear victory for the United States Marine Corps. After spending 12 days in a hospital and receiving 16 pints of blood, Vuza returned to duty as a chief scout for the Marines. He accompanied Lieutenant Colonel Evans F. Carlson of the 2nd Raiders Battalion on her 30-day raid behind enemy lines. Sergeant Major Vuza was highly decorated for his World War II service. The Silver Star was presented to him personally by Major General Alex A. Vandergrift, Commanding General of the 1st Marine Division, for refusing to give information while under Japanese torture. He was also awarded the Legion of Merit for outstanding service with the 2nd Raider Battalion during November and December of 1942. 
and was made Honorary Sergeant Major of the United States Marine Corps. From the British government, he received the George Medal for gallant conduct and exceptional devotion to duty, as well as the Police Long Service Medal, Sir Jacob Charles Vuza, born 1892 on Guadalcanal, died March 15, 1984, at the age of 91. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And before I bring our first guest on, I gotta get over the house cleaning stuff. First and foremost, as always, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers is not only just our first sponsor, but Act Computers has been servicing all Southwest Florida since early 2004. They specialize in medical clinics, veterinarian clinics, Businesses, large and small, it doesn't matter if you're one guy working out of your garage with a secretary or if you have 30, 40, 50 computers, 100 computers, two servers, what have you. Anything you need done on the business side, they can help you, whether it's tablet issues, mounting TVs on your wall, smart TVs, running Cat6 cable, installing access points. You need it done, they can help you do it. Setting up two, uh, setting up two form authentication for your remote software. They can help you out with that, online backups, and of antivirus protection. You need it. They have it. They can help you get it. If they don't know, they can find someone who can help you. Then get the job done. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or hit them up at act-capecoral.com. I know what you're saying, Don. I would love to help you by supporting that computers, but I don't live in your area. Look, if as long as you have working internet, they can help you. Give them a call, 239-283-1120. They will direct you to their website. They will have you click on the blue icon on the right-hand side. That will allow them to connect to your computer, and they can service you remotely. Now, if you want to support the show, but you don't need computer issue, you don't run a business, you don't need help with services, but you use Amazon, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Amazon link, save that in your favorites, put it on your toolbar, make a shortcut to your desktop, however you want to do it. And then whenever you do your Amazon shopping, just click on that link instead of going directly to Amazon. Go to that favorites link. It'll take you to Amazon. Do your regular shopping. Won't cost you an extra dime, but they will kick a few pennies our way. That'll help go into our bank account and help us get more equipment, uh, find better locations. Just make everything easier for us to provide you with better content. Okay, so now you don't need computer work. You're not an Amazon user, but you still want to help. Patreon, this is something we just started. Go to patreon.com forward slash D410 or once again, simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the right-hand side, you'll see a Patreon link. Now this Patreon link, it is not centered up with the rest of them and that's because the code Patreon gives me, it. I'm having a hard time getting to be dead nuts centered with the rest of them. So yes, it drives me crazy. I know it's not perfectly aligned with all the rest of the banner ads, but click on Patreon and how Patreon works you know, I felt kind of bad doing this when we first started, but it's kind of the way the wind is blowing with podcasting and um, video if you're a YouTuber. And that is before you have the large enough crowd or download numbers to get the sponsors to come your way without you actually hunting them down. Because there is a point where you get enough listeners, enough downloads that the sponsors figure it out for themselves and they come to you. I haven't gotten to that point yet. And so Patreon, what you can do is you can become a patron of What's the Scuttlebutt. And there's three tiers. You have the $1 bottler. You literally pay a dollar a month. It's not this word. It's a dollar a month, but it's 24 months in advance. It'll be $24.95 plus tax services. No. They take a dollar out of your account each month. So if you want to join the dollar baller plan, please do it. We'll take your dollar. We'll happily spend it towards advertising, towards what have you. Your dollar will be greatly appreciated. We also have the OG5 plan. That's a reference to another podcast I do called the Waterman and D-Train Show. We always jokingly joked that for the first 48 episodes we had five listeners. We referred to them as the OG5. Ironically, the OG5 plan is only $3.50 a month. Join the $3.50 a month plan. They will throw $3.50 into my account each month. Take it out of your bank account. We will happily use it. And then our big expensive plan is only $7.50. You join this plan and you will get a free t-shirt after about month three. I'll send you an email or you send me an email. Really haven't kind of figured out yet, but we will get the shirts to you. Tell me what shirt you want 
It doesn't have to be a WTSP shirt. It could be a Waterman D-Train show shirt. It could be a Digital 410 shirt. What have you. Tell me what size. Tell me what color. What style. What shirt. And we'll send that to you for free for joining up for the $7.50 plan. So there are three ways to promote our show. But wait, there's one more. And then we'll get on with the show. As many of you know, because of World War II reenacting and my desire not to look fat in my uniform and all my photos and to help prevent myself from ending up on FarbFest, I have dedicated a lot of time, energy, and effort to working out. And during this time, I wear contacts when I run because my glasses slide off my face. And the hardest part about running, especially in high temperature states such as Florida, Las Vegas, where have you, is the humidity which equals sweat, which equals sweat in the eyes, which equals can't see a damn thing, which equals getting ran over in a car and end up in the hospital. You don't want any of those things. And so I didn't want to destroy my hats. I'm a hat snob. I like my hats staying clean as possible and without sweat stains if at all possible. So I went out searching for a appropriate alternative to wearing a hat. I tried cutting off the sleeve of my shirt, but that just turns into a big soppy wet mess doesn't fit right the strings start falling down in your face long story short sleeves.com s-l-e-e-f-s.com they make a whole wide variety of activewear sports clothing bandanas head buffs spats for your cleats if you play flag football on the weekend or your kids playing football in middle school and high school and any you want different styles of spats for when they do the practice games socks are on there hats um i primarily use their sweatbands they're antibacterial uv protected one size fits most quick well wick away i don't want to say quick dry because they're not quick dry but they do wick away the sweat the sweat will not run down your face it does its job they have hundreds of styles if you live in kentucky and you want a kentucky flag or live in florida you want a florida flag california they have the flags they got camouflage ones the ones i have are american flag based they're really cool but anyhow, they do their job. They're great. They're not expensive at all. They're like 13 bucks per bandana or headband. But if you use the promo code D41040, that'll save you 40%. Not only will it save you 40%, but they will kick a few coins my way. And so that helps with promoting our show. So there's four ways to help promote our show. And uh, thank you guys for your continued support. Got some big news coming up. We will get to that here shortly when uh, we bring Jeff on the phone. Okay, so I got all the plugs out of the way. I know I talk fast as hell when I do the plugs, and that's because I don't want to slow everything down and drag it out. So I get through the plugs really, really fast. But now it's on to the show. You may recognize this gentleman. He was on episode 42, parts 1 and 2. That was when we were out at the movie location for Walking Point. And uh, things went great. I put my foot in my mouth once or twice, but it was all all in good fun. He's a great guy, and we've got some big news coming up. But joining us live from Fredericksburg, Texas, is Jeff Copsetta. Is that correct? Jeff, am I getting your last name right? I'm horrible with names. Yes, sir. No, yeah, that's a whole lot better than most people do to it. Well, I'm trying, and now you're just telling me off the air that uh, Texas is a rain playground right now, and you feel like you're back here in Florida. Yeah, well, you know, we we go from ten year droughts to uh, two year floods, kind of thing. That's just this is how it is in the hill country here. We we do what we can. Yeah, I completely understand that. Um, before we get into the big news and what we want to talk about, let's because you know when we had John with the the guys and the cast and crew from Walking Point, we had so many people to interview and so many things to go over that, you know, I don't didn't get a chance to do the in depth sort of background history like I try to do the first time someone's on our show, just so that the audience can get familiar with them. So let's give a little background on you and um, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I can tell you it's just been pure luck. Uh, This is such a unique opportunity that I was just so fortunate to fall into. Um, But very quick background, uh, World War II has, uh, like many of us, has been a really big part of my life. Uh, Both of my grandfathers served during that era. And um, just always had a strong connection with it, uh, just, you know, since I was a kid. And um, so I was fortunate to be able to travel around as, as a youngster. My parents would take me to air shows and, you know, get to meet some of these World War II veterans uh, when I was just a kid. Of course, this is for me growing up in the 
eighties and nineties, you know, it was like 50th anniversary of everything World War II and these guys were abundant. Um, now the, uh, the, as they're getting slimmer, it's really make sure we, these, uh, this whole generation uh, that served during World War II. Um, but yeah, so of course, growing up, uh, passionate about that subject and, and passionate about my country. I, I decided three days after I turned 17 to, uh, to join the greatest organization on planet earth. And that's the United States army. Um, I was halfway through basic training when September 11th happened. Uh, so that changed some things uh, overnight, <laughs> like it did for many Americans. Um, and I uh, was stationed here at Fort Hood. I was a, uh, I was a cavalry scout with the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Cavalry Division. And naturally, we answered the call to, uh, to deploy overseas. I spent a year in Baghdad from 04 to 05. And um, won't go into that, but I could say it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Uh, um, made a lot of good friends and saw a lot of things that uh, well, we'd all like to just put behind us. Um, get out of the Army and uh, got into being a park ranger. I was a park ranger for over nine years, and I really thought that was going to be my career. I enjoyed every minute of it, uh, learned so many things, worked with so many great people. Um, and this museum here in Fredericksburg, I live about an hour away, so I do a little commuting. Um, and uh, But it's always been a big part of uh, you know, a travel destination. Even before I lived in this area, we, we visited here quite often. Um, so just, uh, just interested in the museum and the mission. And I wanted to get involved to come down here and volunteer. And when I made that decision, it was right around the time of a, of a transition year. They were building this new battlefield, dumping all this money into this new Pacific combat zone. Uh, this is back in, uh, in early 2017. And the then living history director had decided that, uh, to hang it up. He'd been here on and off for over 30 years. And, uh, boy, I just came in at the right time. And uh, about two weeks before we opened the new Pacific Combat Zone, I came on full-time to uh, to lead this new living history program. And, uh, I mean, like I said, they, they handed it to me on a silver platter. And uh, two over two years later, I haven't looked back. This has been my life, and it will continue to be my life as long as they, uh, they allow me to do what I do here. And, of course, that museum in which Jeff is referring to is the National Museum of the Pacific War. Um, right. I remember when they first started building, well, shortly after they built that, um, I like to refer to it as a sound stage. I know it's not, but <laughs> shortly after they built that, I start seeing photos uh, popping up on Facebook from some of the, the reenactors or living historians who had participated in some events, and I saw some videos coming out of there. And being someone who got into this hobby primarily based off of the Pacific Theater I was always in awe of that that layout of the program that you guys are able to put on there. I mean, you have tanks. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if it's your guys or one of your volunteers has access to a flamethrower. Um, yeah, that, that, that belongs to us. That belongs to the museum. We actually have two of them. Um, one is from World War II. Uh, as far as I know, it's the only operational World War II era flamethrower in the state of Texas. I could be wrong. It's the only one I know of. Uh, and then the other one was built to look like it, but out of some modern tanks and some modernized uh, things on the on the trigger group and the wand. Um, not easily recognizable, though. It's it's done very well to, to represent a World War II era flamethrower. So, uh, yeah, that... Uh, that weapon is, uh, we, we, we jokingly say that that weapon is the only weapon on the battlefield that does not shoot blanks. <laughs> well, and rightfully, uh, and rightfully so that you would use a reproduction for that environment because, once again, if you have, as far as you guys know at least, not in a private collection, well, museum's private, but it's accessible to the public as far as seeing it, it's not hidden away in someone's personal private collection. If you have the only working World War II era flamethrower in the state of texas and you have a busy living history season where you're using this thing two or three times a weekend obviously you're not going to want to use the original because it won't stay in somewhat pristine condition as it already is in with just sure. the normal wear and tear and the usage of it clearly you wouldn't want to sure. use something of that value as a prop in a living history display much like most of us who do living history 
yeah, we have our original haversacks, we got our original musette bags, but when it comes to the rolling around in the dirt and doing the reenactments, most of us, not everybody, but most of us use our reproduction stuff for that because we don't want to, you know, diminish the quality and add unnecessary wear and tear to the original stuff. Exactly. Yeah, you, you really hit it on the head. I mean, there are some things that we use uh, that are uh, would be considered artifacts, and one of those is our M3A1 Stewart tank. Um, that was that was built in October of 1942, and it, you know, we we crank it once a week and drive it on the battlefield, and we have uh, the, the the main gun has has been blank adapted. Um, uh, there is no reproduction Stewart tanks that I'm aware of, so. Uh, but that's the part of this. That, that's, that's the main reason for the collection that we have down here. There's, there's the main museum collection, and then we have our education and outreach collection, which is things that are separate from the main collection that are meant to be used, to be seen, to show kids, let them handle it, touch it. How heavy is it? What does it feel like? You know. So that's kind of the, and it's a happy medium. Uh, you're right. I mean, there's, there's no reason to, uh, you know, destroy artifacts uh just for the just just to like you said rolling around the mud and things like that um so it's definitely not we, what we want to do but we do want to try to keep these artifacts you know going as long as we can and of course that takes a lot of money uh, so that's uh, always our main focus and um, we're not going to put anything at risk uh to be destroyed that that uh, you know that as much as we can help it so it is a very unique program here it really is it's really something to have the support that we have and, and especially from the volunteers that come out and help me do this. You know, there's a lot of moving parts and it's uh, definitely not a one-man show by any means. Well, interestingly enough, I've said on multiple episodes in the past, at least here in Florida, I jokingly tell people one of the things that the general public don't understand about this hobby is that you don't just go out to the local army surplus store and buy these uniforms. Um, they're all sought after. They're all researched. Whether if they're reproduction, they're purchased from one of three main websites. Um, if they are original, they're donated, and that just about every everybody out on the field, with the exception of a, a few guys who are in some groups who has some donor stuff. Um, when we show up, we're bringing all of our stuff with us. There's not a you know it's not like you're showing up in a movie where you go on a you know trailer and people hand you stuff and away you go. But you made me jealous. You sent me this photo. <laughs> of your equipment room, I guess we'll call it, where it's just aisles and aisles of Z-rollers full of uh, trousers, full of blouses, helmets, web gear. The collection you guys have amounted because of you've put so much emphasis and so much quality into your living history program that it's just, just that one photo you sent me as a teaser, and the reason he sent me a teaser, and the reason Jeff is on here today, this is going to be a short interview because we are going to give you guys some in-depth coverage about the National Museum of the Pacific War coming up next month because I Jeff has so kindly invited, and the museum has so graciously invited us out to their facility over Memorial Weekend to not only participate in the Living History event weekends, um, but to interview some of the resident veterans and to get a full, basically, full access to the museum. So I'm going to try to provide video to you guys. We're going to do on-site interviews. We're going to get more in-depth about the National Museum of the Pacific War, about the Living History Program, and everything that goes along with it. And so I wanted to bring Jeff on today to kind of build that excitement. And not only that, but to get some information out about that week. And I actually have a listener who listens to both my podcasts who lives in Texas. And once he found out, he said he's going to make the trip down there that weekend. And so because we do have listeners all over the place, I wanted to get the information out about the museum, about that weekend, and about something else that I saw on your guys' Instagram page, which I'm completely intrigued by. Um, I don't know of very other museums. I'm sure there are that do something like that, but we'll get that in a moment. Let's talk about that weekend, Jeff. Yeah, so... Uh... We, we always do our living history on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we do seven or eight weekends throughout the year, and we'll do two programs on Saturday at 1030, and then again at 2, and then two uh, programs again on Sunday at the same time. So it's, a, it's about a one-hour program. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, I'm uh, very fortunate to have uh, the, the, the depth of uniforms and gear uh, in our quartermaster cage, and that's really – I think one of the bigger selling points, I mean, th this program 
recruits itself for volunteers. I mean, that's that's easy. Um, but the fact that we can have guys show up in shorts and flip-flops and you give me a few hours and we've got them in uniform, trained up, weapon familiarization, and everything they need to hit the beach with us is uh, is pretty unique. It's like you said, this, this is not a cheap hobby. To, no, not at all. To be in, you you know that. And well, in the service, um, not to interrupt you, but the, just to put a pause, a little comma right there, the service that you guys provide by doing that, um, I kind of know firsthand because when I got started into this, as I've explained multiple times, I made the logistic mistake of my first impression being PTO when there's nobody doing a lot of PTO stuff down here in Florida because one, it's hard to, to get an enemy. And so I met a guy named John John Thomas and he ran at the time the first infantry division group down here. And even though I have my Marine Corps stuff, he would let me tag along with his first ID guys when they're doing living history events. And he said, Hey, if you actually want to start doing reenactments, you gotta get you know, you need to get a uh, first ID impression together, but I can help you out until we get there. And John was kind of like a, a smaller privatized version of what you guys do. And his whole thing was, because his son was 16 at the time. Uh, no, his son started reenacting with him when his son was 13, 16. Eight, as soon as he turned 18, he he's in the Army now. He's an MP because his dad was also a police officer and a detective. And so and his father was in the Navy, but his son Coleman went into the Army. He's an MP. But he had noticed at the time, especially with his son, that A, because of the barrier to entry, i.e. cost, a lot of young cats, age-appropriate cats, aren't into this hobby because of that barrier to entry. And so he figured out a way. He would work with local museums. Unfortunately, one of them has since gone gone under because the owner has passed away. But they would set up living history events, and they would go out and volunteer at places and raise revenue to buy blanks and uniforms. And he would have a utility trailer and much like what you guys do he would find young cats who are interested but weren't sure if they were ready to provide the investment along with that so he would let them borrow their stuff and then they would slowly start buying trousers and they'd buy their own shirts at that point now they're only borrowing a little and sooner than later they would have their own impression and then they would be fully immersed in the hobby and whether they stuck with our group or went off to another one it really didn't matter it was just one young cat who we helped get in, or he helped get into the hobby by providing them with stuff that they didn't know if they could afford at the time. And so you guys kind of do the same thing. You have someone who's interested in it. They come out, you outfit them. And I'm sure what you probably find are the guys who are really into it, they slowly start buying all their own stuff. And so each time they show up, they're borrowing less of yours because they have more of theirs. And before you know it, they're completely outfitted with their own stuff and they're fully immersed in the hobby. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, it doesn't take long. They, a lot of folks come out once, and boy, they're hooked. Um, but yeah, the uh, the boots may be a little uncomfortable. The the blouse may be a little too big that gets issued out, and you know that's just that's how it is when we deal with the amount of uh, volunteers that we do deal with here. Is it is a, you know, it's fifty, sixty, seventy, sometimes eighty volunteers coming out on a weekend. Um, so yeah, it's, well, you know, I'll just go ahead and. I'll buy my own boots for next time or things like that, you know, the leggings or uh, what have you. So, yeah, it doesn't take long before they're completely immersed, and it's great because it, it uh, if it all spawns from here and they go off and they do uh, European theater impressions or, you know, whatever, um, at least it started here and we've got a younger group to keep what we're doing alive, you know. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've got some great relationships. I actually, the volunteers that come out, some of them are active duty, and most of the time, I'll have at least one representative that's volunteering with us that, that serves in each one of the five major branches of the service. That's beautiful. So it is incredible, and of course, they are recognized uh, at the end of the program by branch. Uh, mm-hmm. So when folks see active duty soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen, and Coast Guardmen uh, coming out here on the weekends away from their families, you know, they're working all week on post. And, you know, they got a weekend off, and Friday night, here they are, showing up, getting their gear, getting their rack. They're here all weekend, and then they go back Sunday evening, you know, just in time to get a little rest before Monday morning PT. I mean, it just it blows me away, their, their passion to come out here and their dedication to do it. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, talking about the age group, um, it's funny. I, uh, there's a program that uh, last year, I remember some feedback from a woman who came down to me after the program, and she was just she was in tears, uh, which is uh, quite common for a lot of our spectators. It is a very moving, um, very moving program. But she was just—I mean, I almost couldn't understand what she was saying. She almost couldn't make a full sentence. And 
what she was crying about was she, there was a there was a casualty that was taken on the beach. Uh, so this is 10, 15 feet away from the first row in the amphitheater. So we're pretty close to the public at this point. And she couldn't believe how young this casualty was. You know, this 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 soldier goes down and he's screaming, and the medics, everybody, were trying to, you know stabilize him and, and drag him behind cover and concealment and she said I just I can't believe he was so young he was so young and I said ma'am that's an active duty marine serving today and that's what puts it into perspective uh when we think of the greatest generation or at least I did I you know when you think of these war heroes these guys who were you know been around and just something to really look up to and while they are uh we have to remember that when they were inside of that landing craft most of them were some of them were 16, 17, 18-year-old pimply-faced kids that mm-hmm. just didn't want to die. Yep. And uh, and that's, that's how it is in any war. You go through history, it's it's the 18-year-olds that are really, you know, being the ones that are called upon. And um, I saw it firsthand. Uh, so, yeah, that's what it takes. I need 17, 18, 19-year-old individuals to come out and, and volunteer to uh, to really get that point across, it's you know, and that's kind of the disservice Hollywood, and not and not to blame them. They they want their stars, they want their leading men, but you know, um, sure. for the people who don't have experience with reading history or even active military, well, everything they know is from what they learned from Hollywood. Even if they're in their sixties now, when you got John Wayne doing Sansa Iwo Jima, he was too old. <laughs> he, he he aged out. Even you know Tom Hanks' role in Save It Private Ryan and half the cats. Even though a lot of them were young, but most of them were on the borderline of aging out. But because sure. Hollywood wants their leading men and experienced actors for the most part, a lot of those roles in a lot of those war movies, Nicolas Cage and Wind Talkers, way too old. But because yeah. people see the known Hollywood stars, except for the quote-unquote up-and-comers, when they see these war pictures, they're... Used they just okay everybody who fought then was mid twenties late thirties that wasn't the right. case Sid Phillips famously turned sixteen in Guadalcanal so that meant his parents lied on his behalf he joined at the age of fifteen think about that if you're listening to this imagine last weekend when you asked your fifteen year old son to take out the trash mow the grass that look he gave you that sound him oh, okay we had a generation of fifteen and sixteen year old men boys who turned to men who not only went and fought this war they had their parents lie on their behalf because their patriotism was so strong and their desire to protect their country was so strong that they went out and did it and famously i think george washington was what 16 when he first led his first troops now granted back then um but the life expectancy was completely different so 16 was the modern day you know 30 but with that being said these were young, young cats who are doing this. And that's what blows my mind. And um, and with the barrier of entry of, i.e., finances, that's why a majority of your reenactors are of an older age because they have a career that affords them to pay all their housing expenses plus support this expensive career or allow the younger kids you, you know who do get into it if they're not working full-time to support this they have family who are financially stable enough to to invest into this sort of thing. And the younger we can get people in there, obviously the more authentic it is, but we're creating replacements for as us older folks age out because of our not age, but because of our physical ability to walk. We need these young kids to fill our spots to continue to carry on this hobby and this mission of preserving history. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, more often than not, we'll have World War II veterans uh, in the audience at these programs, and uh, we uh, we try to recognize them individually uh, ahead of time. Uh, so, folks, you know, this old guy sitting next to you, or maybe he's the old guy behind you in line at the grocery store. Uh, we try to bring a little more awareness to just what was done. You know, for us so long ago, and we've we've coined a little phrase down here in our in our living history uh, detachment. Uh, we do what we do because they did what they did, um, and you know we're fortunate now to there's still a few uh, veterans in the area that are 
pretty pretty local to uh, to where I'm at here that we can call upon and we can ask them, hey, is this how you guys did this? You know, and and they can see and they can critique it. Um, all well knowing, I won't always have that. We won't always have that luxury mm-hmm. that are in this hobby to to ask them who is there and to uh, to work at a place like the National Museum of the Pacific War. Uh, I I strive uh, to to make sure that the volunteers here understand what will be asked of us when uh, when they're no longer here to ask how it was done. People are going to look to us and think, well, that must have been how it was. These guys are doing it right, and that's that's it. That's the mission. We've got to we've got to do it and do it right. I mean, there's there's so many stories that need to be told, um, and we we can't let history become ancient history. Um, and I think our, our mission statement here at the museum really says it best. We inspire our youth by honoring our heroes. And I think there's something that needs to be said to you guys because I've said this in the past, and obviously after the popularization of HBO's The Pacific and a few handful of movies prior to that, um, and, you know, whatever people's opinions are on it, whatever, but the PTO was always kind of overshadowed by the ETO when it at least came to Hollywood um, pop culture, everybody knows a lot about the European theater, which is very important stuff. But kind of like Tom Hanks said when Band of Brothers came out, a lot of the cats who fought in the Pacific said, hey, what about us? We fought too. And that's what kind of drove him and Spielberg to do the Pacific. And I know a lot of museums, you know, they have their their areas where they cover the PTO, but they also cover the ETO and, and other theaters of the war the mediterranean and all that but i think it's great that you know your museum has decided to okay let's focus in on this pacific theater and then let's talk about all the groups that were there the army the marine corps the cbs you know everybody and let's just focus on that so we can get the history out and remember these people and because once again yes the eto was big and it was important but let's not forget, the Marine Corps landed in Guadalcanal, August 7th, 1942. And they fought until the end, until 1945. So the, the combat against the Japanese in the Pacific, granted, not longer than what our allies fought against Nazi Germany, but at least what um, the Americans' contribution to that war. Those guys were there a long time. They started out fighting with 1903 Springfields that were left over from World War One, because at the time, the Army wasn't quote-unquote combat ready. They considered the Marine Corps combat ready with their antiquated equipment. But those, those guys went, and they fought, and they fought a long, arduous combat. And kind of like I mentioned on our last episode, especially in the Pacific with the rain, the trench foot, the dysentery, once the bullets stopped firing, things didn't get much better. Yes, your your uh, percentages of dying from the enemy went down, but the battle against the environment was always there. And it was a hell of a battle. That environment yeah, just absolutely. wore those guys out. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you, you bring up a great point. I think when people think Pacific War, Pacific Theater, it's, it's Marines hitting the beach. It's probably the flag raising on Iwo Jima maybe Guadalcanal, atom bomb. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it is, it's very glossed over. It's very vague. Um, and that's what we're trying to incorporate here is to really talk the whole story. I mean, there were, there were six Marine divisions that served in the, in the Pacific during World War II. There were 22 Army divisions in the Pacific during World War II. Um, that's something that I think, you know, few people really understand. Um, not to mention how many of the Army Air Forces uh, out, out of the Air Corps that were uh, assigned over here. Mm-hmm. And like you say, yeah, the Navy, the, the Coast Guardmen, it was really, it was a full-out effort in the Pacific, and that's what we're trying to do here is to show people how all branches, you know, serve. And not just that. Uh, we can't forget, uh, and, and there's a special part in the beginning of our program where we talk about all of the ladies that served in all branches what they were doing back home in their mm-hmm. victory gardens, you know, in the um, in in manufacturing with the uh, over eight million Rosie the Riveters. My goodness, the Red Cross. Uh, when, yeah, the American Red Cross. Women's Auxiliary Corps. 
Exactly. So we, we, we try to talk about all of those things, uh, and, and we, we're fortunate I've got a, a good contingent of, uh, of ladies that come out, and we've got some original World War II uniforms of the you know, women Marines and the waves, the wax, the wasps, the spars um, in these original uniforms to show people, hey, you know, yeah, there's for every soldier or Marine fighting on the ground, there's probably eight or nine people that put them there. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, we can't forget. Um, and even those who didn't serve, uh, but maybe they gave up, you know, their scrap around the house, their rubber, their brass, their copper, their silk. Nylon help make the things. Yeah, absolutely. The girls are drawing lines up their calves with their mascara to simulate the lines on their nylons that they gave up, because all that was exactly. being redirected to the war effort. Effort. Yeah, yeah. And let's not forget the Seabees. I mean, once we captured these atolls and these islands, we needed infrastructure. We needed runways. Yes, we could bring supply in via ship. But that's slow. Bring it in via plane is a lot quicker, and you need runways. And so these guys were out there laying that uh, mesh material on bulldozers while bullets or mortars are flying around them. I mean, the amount of effort logistic wise to get those things done is just tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating uh, how many things happen in such a short amount of time. I mean, you think from Pearl Harbor to, uh, to Victor in Japan day was uh, just under four years and, not not to take away from what we were doing on the other side of the planet in the European theater, but to do what we did over those vast distances in the Pacific in such a short amount of time is uh, it's incredible. And it's impossible for us to tell this story in a, about a 70-minute program. <laughs> you know, we uh, we do our best. We we try to show an unbiased view. You'll you'll be briefed not only by uh, by the Americans and what the soldiers and Marines would be issued. You're going to hear personal stories from individuals that served in all five branches um, and the ladies, of course, but we're also going to have our Japanese commander come out and brief. And so people can kind of see, you know, where, where the Japanese uh, were at this time. And, 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 you know, they were sitting pretty shortly after Pearl Harbor, boy, they were, mm-hmm. they were on top of the world in their, uh, in their greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, uh, which was a really long name for the Japanese empire. <laughs> uh, and you, you probably know if you actually measured it by square areas, the largest uh, empire in recorded human history, where they were sitting in uh, 1941, the early part of 1942. So for us to shrink that empire all the way down to mainland Japan, like I said, in less than four years, is just an unbelievable undertaking that shows the American spirit, there our power of manufacturing and coming together and and uh, and doing what we did is just. Something that'll probably never be paralleled again, at least maybe not in our lifetime. But uh, yeah, so uh, man, we're really, really excited to have you come out. I'm, uh, you I'm know, so uh, excited. Um, one, I'm excited <laughs> to come to Texas. I've driven through the Panhandle a few times. I drove to California. My dad lived in Texas for a few years, but I never had the opportunity to get out there. So I'm, I'm more than stoked. I'm super excited. Um, sure. I'm looking forward to not only a to participate in your guys' living history event. But to see the museum, um, to have access to some of the, the cool stuff in the background, um, I will be out there May 24th through the 26th. Um, like I said, I want to bring some video equipment. I want to try to put together some video stuff. I'm going to do some live streaming from there. Uh, we're going to promote, promote it, promote it, promote it. While I'm there, I may actually try to um, draft some of your guys to uh, perhaps maybe come down to uh, Fort Morgan, Alabama in November for the 75th anniversary of Peleliu. We did Terrawa last year. Um, we had, I'm, I'm actually going to have Galen Wagner on probably later on this episode to talk about that event, but the, the Terrawa event was great. We had a landing craft. Um, one of the things we stuck to, and got to give Galen Wagner such credit for, is he stuck to authenticity standards for Terrawa. you got to cross cross flap canteen get rid of it didn't exist you know no green uh i'm going to use the nice word no green garrison caps they weren't issued then everybody had to have khaki i mean everything and once you it was kind of frustrating but once you got there and you're in it and everybody literally as the name implies uniform when everybody's uniform was that uniform the amount of reenactors the bivouac just being out there it was a tremendous event Unfortunately, with the hurricane that had came through there three weeks prior, 
and the recovery going on, that event, the public side was very was very limited because of the recovery effort going on, so it kind of turned into the world's most expensive tactical event, but as a reenactor, it was just a wonderful weekend, and so um, obviously now we're going to focus on the 75th anniversary of Peleliu, and we're trying to get more uh, you know, PTO reenactors, and like you said, not only Marine Corps, we actually have Army cats out there as well in their HBTs, and we had CBs, we had uh, guys in the Navy uniforms, everything, so um, I might spread the word a little bit amongst your guys who have their own gear who may be interested in making that trip. But let's move past sure. that real quick. You guys posted something on your Instagram page, and I cannot pronounce the first word. I'm not even going to try. But you have a Japanese cultural exchange project going on. How's that work? Yeah, the, the Kakahashi, I believe is how you say it. Yeah, K-A-K-E-H-A-S-H-I. Yes, yes, sir. Um, yeah, this is something that was done last year, and I am not uh, I'm not the point of contact for sure. that, but I'll do my best to, to explain it. Um, last year, the museum director and our special programs uh, director went with, uh, I believe they took six, somewhere in there, about a, about a half a dozen or so uh, local students. There was an essay contest, and they were, they were you know, interviewed and chosen for this uh, unique opportunity to go to to two major cities in Japan for about 10 days uh, last year and just uh, try to bring some of that culture uh, to, you know, a little town like Fredericksburg, Texas. Um, so they uh, was a very successful program. So this year, I believe they're now upping the number to taking 22 students and they're opening it up to uh, a, a greater area of schools in the, uh, to, you know, out to San Antonio and, and I believe Austin. Uh, so it's uh, they are actually right now in the middle of interviewing these students who have turned in uh, an essay, and I do not uh, envy no. <laughs> the, my uh, my coworkers who are doing these interviews right now because that must be really tough to uh, have to, to take wait. from such a great uh, you know just so so many uh, uh, great responses to this project. Um, yeah, that's yeah, something that they work very closely with with the uh, with with Japan and. And we try to, uh, you know, like we always have, this museum This museum does not start on December 7th, 1941. And it may surprise you when you come through here. Uh, the story really starts when Commodore Perry dropped anchor in Tokyo Bay in the middle of the 19th century and opened Japan to the world of trade, uh, you know, to, to trade in the, in the free world. So it's, that's the beginning of this museum. You're going to travel through and what, what really what we call the seeds of conflict, what really brought these two nations together and where Japan was becoming a superpower from the Sino-Japanese War and, of course, the Russo-Japanese War and things like that. So it, it's a long ways before it gets to uh, the, the Pearl Harbor exhibit. Well, as it should, so because, all about. because once again, yes, you guys are focusing on a specific theater of operation and the only way to tell that story is to tell it from the very beginning and so yes and now i'm going to assume and this was going to be one of the other questions i had um and you may not maybe something that's working do you guys have a display is not the correct word i'm looking for um do you have an in-depth um subject on the coast watchers and the contribution of the indigenous people to the war effort? I believe, yes. I believe we do in, uh, as you go through the gallery, uh, there, there's going to be an exhibit that, that is going to talk about, uh, yeah, just how important it was for those coast watchers to give us those, those fair warnings, uh, and just how dangerous it was for them to be doing that, living in the jungle for long periods of time and trying to slip through the Japanese resistance and, and back and forth, trying to get report information accurately and rapidly. Yes, I do. I do know there is there is mention of that in the Bush Gallery. I could not tell you to what extent. Sure. Um, but but yeah, absolutely. We there is you know, like I said there's so there is so much to cover, and mm -hmm. it, it does take a while. We do have we also have a temporary gallery where we do because there are some things that you know the museum is only so big. So there are uh, certain times of the year where we'll choose something that may be a little more you know overshadowed or maybe not covered in depth. And then we bring that to our temporary exhibit and, and have that open to the public for you know months on end to kind of uh, refocus on some of these different things that are uh, you know may seem like a minor detail, but hey, my dad did that during the war. I didn't see a whole lot about you know well, you know we we try to 
try to mitigate that through through temporary galleries and exhibits and things like that. Well, um, sure, because you know, everybody yeah. knows about the French Resistance contribution to the ETO as far as sure. uh, the spreading of misinformation, intelligence. The indigenous people down there, they provided us because they were stuck on those islands for years when the Japanese took over, long before we got there. And the amount sure. of information, yeah. not only topography, but uh, logistics, numbers of troops, uh, stashing points, the amount of information, and not only that, but the amount of risk that they voluntarily put themselves through because they're disdained for the Japanese culture at that time, the way they were treated. I mean, there were stories about, you know, some of their leaders being tortured and, and uh, you know, being cut with sabers, and yet he escaped and made it back to the Marines that told him what's going on. And so I, I, that'd be very cool to see that stuff. And I, I'm so thrilled to get out there. Um it's my first time, like I said, being in Texas. Not only that, to, to do a living history event in Texas, and I'm so looking forward to it. His name is Jeff Copsetta. He is the living yeah, history Copsetta. director for the National Museum of the Pacific War. We will be talking to him in more detail on the, uh, the episodes we record from the location at the National Museum of the Pacific War. I want to thank you for everything you do. Thank you for your time. Um, not sure. only, and thank you for your service, but thanks for being a nice all-around cool cat. I met you on the set of uh, The Walking Point, and you were just easy to get along with. You're just friendly as all get out. Um, you and I got along very well, and um, it's just great meeting you, and I, I already consider you a friend, and I just want to thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate that. The pleasure's all mine. It's been it's been uh, really nice to know you as well, and I look forward to uh, to seeing you again and having you in Texas. I mean, when you said you went through the Texas Panhandle, oh. that's about as far away from me as like North Carolina is to you. So that's such a <laughs> horrible know? drive. It's just flat. There's nothing there. You just <laughs> yeah. came fresh out of Kansas, or you're going into Kansas, and obviously when you're driving through yeah. Kansas, the only thing to look at is signs about Dorothy's house, 675,000 <laughs> miles from here. There's nothing to look at, but Texas overall, I'm just. I'm going to land on the airplane. I'm going to get me a Texas steak, and then I'm going to meet my, make my way down to you. But one of the things I like to do when I have people who work for really cool museums, such as when I had the guys on from the um, National Historic Site of the Springfield Armory, I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. Uh, the guys don't like this because it's like telling you to pick your favorite child. But because I don't have access to really, really, really super cool stuff that very few people have access to because – what people may not realize or what they do realize, for everything you guys have on public display, you got tons more in the back that people don't see or it's rotated out. What's one of the coolest things that you have access to that every time you see it, it blows your mind saying, wow, I can't believe that I'm looking at this, whether it was something that belonged to a famous Marine or a famous soldier or just a widget, a device, something. What is there something at the museum that every time you walk by it, that you're thinking, wow! I can't believe I have access to this on a daily, on a daily basis. Yeah, there's there's a few things that come to mind. Um, if you're familiar with the Japanese fighter ace Saburo Sakai, uh, he was uh, he was shot uh, through the eye or through the face uh, over Guadalcanal. Um, his flight helmet, uh, flight goggles that he was wearing that day, and silk scarf are on display here. Uh, that's pretty neat to see. The one of the five Japanese mini subs uh, of the five that went into the harbor uh, the morning of December 7, 1941. One of them uh, had uh, been knocked out um, by a destroyer depth charge, and the navigation equipment had been uh, haywire, so it ran aground, didn't make it inside of the harbor. Uh, that Japanese mini sub is essentially POW number one of the war. And was, you know, went traveled all over uh, America, helping raise war bonds. Uh, you can see pictures of it uh, right there in Times Square, uh, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, you can walk up and touch that submarine. That's that is awesome. here in the uh, Pearl Harbor exhibit. But I think what really, I guess, if I had to pick one thing, because uh, there there is a lot, uh, the one thing I get the most feedback on, I think, is. When people say, you know, I've been to uh, I've been to Pearl Harbor, I've been to the the battleship Arizona, uh, you know, memorial there, um, but I've I've never been able to touch it. And we have uh, we have a hatch 
from the from the Arizona that's mounted not behind glass. You can feel free to come up and touch a piece of the Arizona. And what's really haunting about this particular artifact is they're about halfway up this, this door, this hatch, there's a kind of a darker stain. And it's explained uh, in the description that that's where the oil was sitting on top of the water uh, as, as the, the ship went down. And if you knew where this hatch came from, and I can show you when you get here, uh, it really puts into perspective how much of that ship was then underwater. Um, also, there's kind of a real hasty, odd cut hole, uh, probably just done by a cutting torch. And um, and that's when we're trying to get to the guys on the other side of this hatch. And to think about how many lives were lost on the Arizona alone uh, and what happened because of that day uh, to be able to come up and touch that. Uh, I don't know if you can get that experience anywhere else. So, well, my that's trip my out there is definitely going to be a huge check on a phrase that I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of the whole bucket list thing, but but it, <laughs> I do have a list of things I want to get done before I die, and this is going to be a huge check mark off of there. Jeff, if people are interested in getting more information about the National Museum of the Pacific War or they want to follow your social media pages, where is the best place to go? And even better, if someone's living, well, they don't have to live in your area, but if somebody has some artifacts that has been handed down to their family and they're starting to become aware of the historical importance or they realize that they can't preserve it in a way that it needs to be preserved because... As an example, I always point out when I have guys from museum on paper artifacts, if you want to display them, they got to be on acid-free paper, UV protecting glasses, all that stuff. If somebody has something that they think maybe you guys would be interested in having donated or on loan to them or to reach out to you guys, where's the best place to go? Yeah, very simple. It's just PacificWarMuseum.org. Um, there is, uh, at the top of that page, when you first go to the home page, you can actually go through uh, what we call the uh, the Nawal Education Research Center, or the NERC. It'll say NERC in archives, uh, where we're digitizing oral histories and pictures. There's a huge menu that you can go through there to, you know, maybe settle a, an argument about gear or things like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, there's uh, talking about the story that we have here and, and the, you know, the, the legacy of this museum and, and uh, I probably should have mentioned this sooner. The reason that this museum is in Fredericksburg, Texas, why it's, you know, a thousand miles from the closest ocean is this is the birthplace of Chester Nimitz, you know, our, our commander in chief of the Pacific fleet during world war two. Um, his, he, he grew up, uh, in this area, uh, and his grandfather owned a hotel here and, and Nimitz as a young boy would see these, soldiers and sailors in uniform coming through as they're traveling through Texas and was just intrigued by their uniforms and it may have been what prompted him to join uh, the military um, but as the most powerful man in the Pacific during World War II uh, they of course the, the city wanted to you know do a museum in his honor um, to, for being such an incredible leader and, and, and uh, what he did and what he's you know uh, what he achieved during the Second World War um, and he said, well, you can do it in honor of all of the millions that served under me during the Pacific. So that's really what his legacy is about. And you can come through this hotel, uh, the, what is you know, the Nimitz Gallery, and it's got artifacts about his family and uh, just the German settlers coming to Fredericksburg. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that's, really what it, that's really what it spawns from is, is really the legacy of Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz. Um, but yeah, so just PacificWarMuseum.org. There's uh, there's a link there. It'll show the living history, or who to contact to donate something here. Um, we do have a lot of neat things that folks have, uh, you know, like you said, either either donated or or given to us on loan. Uh, one thing I can think of that you'll probably be very familiar with if you've done anything about Tarawa, is uh, there were four Medal of Honor recipients mm -hmm. from from that campaign. Of course, three were posthumous. Uh, and one of them, uh, Sergeant uh, William J. Bordeland from San Antonio, Texas, his family has been nice enough to uh, loan his Medal of Honor, and that is on display here uh, at the museum as well. So you will see Bordeland's uh, Medal of Honor. Um, so that's uh, that's one of the things that uh, that we have on display that's on loan from a family. 
that knows uh, that it's definitely in the right place for, uh, you know, indefinite amount of time as long as we have it here. But Yeah, that was the, uh, yeah. uh, the cool little extra bonus for me at the uh, 75th anniversary of the Tarawa landings. I had interviewed him on this podcast beforehand, and that was Clay Bonnyman Evans. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, they had just recovered his grandfather's bones. He was the only uh, Medal of Honor recipient not to been recovered at the time and he actually was out there we hooked him up with a uniform and he was on my landing craft and i have this great picture i just took a selfie i took one or two of them and i kind of took a photo around and you know all all the regular reenactors you know we all have smiles on our faces we're like this is so sweet we get to do our first amphibious landing because other than this event the only place you can really do it is on a you know annual basis is up at the d-day event up in ohio but when I took this picture, Clay Bonneman Evans is standing behind me and the look on his face, because he has been to Tarawa, he's been on Red Beach 1, he's walked the water, he's seen the bunker where his grandfather was killed. And this was kind of like putting a bow on it for him because he'd already been there, but now he gets, even if it's only 2%, he gets to at least know what it was like to come off the landing craft walk through the water he had the m1 you know garen in his hand he had the haversack on the helmet the leggings the whole nine he crawling in the sand granted we'll thank god we'll never experience what it's like to get shot at and none of us want to so you know but for him you could see he was going he was in deep thought in this photo because here he is on a landing craft presenting the event that his grandfather died at and he was kind of getting to experience that last little step in the his historical um, path of what his grandfather went through. And it, it was really cool just to know that he was there and what he was experiencing being part of that. Yeah, absolutely. It, that is definitely something special. It it reminds me, and I, and I know we're probably getting short on time, but uh, you, you'll definitely appreciate this. Uh, last year we had a uh, an LCVP, uh, Coxon, who made seven invasions in the Pacific. He was a Coast Guardman, and uh, he's published a few books. And I, uh, he lives up in Tennessee, and I just happened to be reading his book and was traveling through Tennessee uh, at the same time. And I asked if I could just meet him and shake his hand, and it that developed into a, a friendship and an invite for him to come to our program. And he not only came to see our program. We put him in Navy chambray's, a May West, and a gray steel pot, That's and awesome. put him in our LCVP. And uh, because we have the, the Marines land from one side of the beach, and the Army platoon lands from the other, the Army platoon comes out of the LCVP that we have here. And uh, he was in that LCVP in that Higgins boat with us. And to to look back at him and see him as we're coming out onto the battlefield before the ramp drops, and you could uh, you could see it in his eyes, man. Mm-hmm. He was he was there. Um, so to ha- to be landed, uh, you know, uh, during our program uh, by a uh, a Higgins boat, uh, coxswain was something very special. Not to mention, we actually had a P fifty one overhead flying uh, flying cover escort for us over the battlefield simultaneously. So with a World War II veteran in a jump seat in the back of that P fifty one, so that was a uh, that was a special program. <laughs> and not only is that special, but that kind of lends on it's yes, it's unneeded, but it lends legitimacy and almost an approval to what we're doing. When you have sure. someone who was there during the original event, when they go as far as physically participating in that or at least showing up and, and they're kind of putting their seal of approval on like, hey, not only because not only, you know, is this okay, but we appreciate what you're doing because there's some people like a friend of mine, when he first met me through work at the radio station and he found out I was a reenactor, he was kind of put off by it. He kind of thought that it was almost insulting to go out there and to pretend you get shot and to go through the motions. He, he, he kind of felt like it was almost a little bit of a slight on the memory of the people who actually died. But as he learned who I was and we became friends and he actually learned about what we do as living historians and reenactors, his opinion changed on that. But I can only imagine if he had that opinion, there's other people out there who have that opinion too. And so when you have someone who was there, uh, not only show up at your event, but actively participate in it, it's kind of, it provides a little bit of um, a go ahead, a stamp of approval, some, 
you know, legitimacy to what we're trying to do when it comes to preserving history. Absolutely. That's what it's all about, man. Jeff Copsetta, thank you so much for your time. He is the Living History Director for the National Museum of the Pacific War. I will be out there next month from the 24th through the 26th. Um, you and I got some logistic things to talk off of behind, off the air because um, obviously there are certain things I don't want to take through TSA, so you will happily loan me things on the other side. Uh, but we'll get that sorted out in the background. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, keep your feet dry. Uh, good news is your crops are getting uh, plenty of water out there in Texas. I don't know. What do you guys grow in Texas other than dirt and a steer? <laughs> oh, we have rocks, too. Oh, rocks, dirt, <laughs> steer, and uh, rattlesnake. You'll you'll be surprised when you come to this to this area of the country. I mean, right right in the heart of the hill country in Texas. No, I'm looking and, forward to uh, it. And I believe there are something like sixty uh, wineries right here in this county. So yes. you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I live in Florida, so I'm already <laughs> I'm already used to the humidity because that's usually people's. It's so hot here, so you won't even get that out of me. I'm used to it. So I walk around jeans all day <laughs> in our ninety degree weather. So I'm so looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing your facility, meeting your guys. Uh, talking to some of your uh, resident vets and just we're gonna turn it into something big man i appreciate your time and i'll talk to you soon yes sir look forward to it bye-bye and that's going to do it for this episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast now i am not the one to take undue um credit for something but i will say the day following this interview with jeff uh the instagram page for the national museum of the pacific war posted a photo talking about their um display their feature about the coast watchers during the Pacific. So I'm happy to say they do in fact have a section of their storyline dedicated to the coast watchers that played a very, very important role. Uh, Thanks everybody so much for your time. Once again, subscribe to us on iTunes. So many of you do. I want to thank you so much. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. The better review we get, the more likely iTunes will share our podcast with other people. Um, Follow us online at the What's the Scuttlebutt Facebook page. Uh, just go to Facebook.com. Just type in What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast or WTSP. You'll find us there. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter. The easiest way to find all those pages is go to d-410.com. And please subscribe on Patreon. We had some new people join us tonight after our latest episode of the Waterman and D-Train show. But thanks, everybody, for your continued support. And we will talk to you all next week. Okay.